this is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to sessions from the media rumble 2018 so why don't i start with telling you and it's great that we're coming out of the data uh section because we fought back with data and i'll i'll tell you what this year has been like um i started rappler in 2012 So we turned six years old this year, right? But I'm old, as in, like, I've been around since the 80s, and the black and white one is the 80s, when we used to have two weeks to do a story, right? You could disappear for two weeks. And then the 90s, when live shots, we started doing live shots, but the live shots would be, like, once a month. And then the 2000s, that would be, there you go, the one over here, which, what did this tell us? Um, the cambio warfare that wasn't there you know in iraq we in cnn went through a month of cambio warfare training uh and then uh this one here 2000 2010 i was leading a new the largest television station in the philippines and we embraced uh social media we embraced citizen journalism Why is that important? I've been a journalist for more than 30 years, but then this January, the Philippine government decided that uh, they should try to close us down. So I had a ton of cases, several investigations. Uh, I've be- I'd never been on the other side this way, so it was a really new experience. They did this. I had a total of maybe six different investigations, several different cases, I became a tax evader when supposedly six months earlier, the Philippine government actually gave Rappler an award for being uh, one of the top corporate taxpayers in the Philippines. Um, six months later, we have a tax evasion case, and we're still being investigated. And then I started going to the police and to the Department of Justice. There's a day when I had to go three times, and I ran out of synonyms for the word ludicrous, ridiculous, um, a waste of time. <laughs> But they did try to shut us down. They revoked our license of in- incorporation. And uh, just last Friday, I had a-, a little bit of faith restored because the Court of Appeals, we appealed, uh, we brought it to the Court of Appeals, and they said, uh, you can't use this to try to shut them down, and has remanded the case right back to the SEC. So that's good news. But here's what happened since then, right? All of a sudden, uh, I became a woman taking on Duterte in a press freedom fight. You don't really want to do that right now. I didn't. I just wanted to be a journalist. But being a journalist at this point in time in the Philippines meant that I couldn't duck and I couldn't hide. Um, And here's the irony of all of it. These social media tech platforms, the social media companies that were supposed to liberate us and make us um, get rid of, give more voices, was exactly the platform that was being used to stifle free speech. Free speech is being used to stifle free speech. And I'll show you the data we did in the Philippines because you in India have gone through something similar, are going through something similar. Um, What we saw was that the social media campaign machinery that helped President Duterte win was pivoted a month later and essentially was used to to hit and target specific people like me, uh, uh, perceived opposition, with, and we were targeted with hate. And I'll show you how much. But... What did I, the, the top news group said, I blamed Facebook for political division. I did more than that. I said, Facebook, you're responsible for this. Hi, Facebook, who is, <laughs> who is uh, also part of one of the sponsors of our conference. This is the weird thing for us journalists today. Rappler is also a partner of Facebook in fact-checking. We're one of two partners in the Philippines. We have a true love-hate relationship. We're really frenemies, and we know we need each other. So why the Philippines? Well, this is from 2017, and you can see that we rank the highest number of hours spent online. We're number one. And then come to 2018, look at that. The time spent on social media is we're number one. Where is India? Let's look. I think part of your, the, you still have a ways to go. 
to go online and you're actually jumping over because you still have maybe is it 20 percent uh, internet penetration rate and then you're going to leapfrog that by going in through mobile right but again we can be a cautionary tale so let me start with how reality and in the real world can be different from reality in the virtual world and i'm going to start with the drug war in the philippines starting july of 2016 which is the month after president duterte took office uh, we had a drug war um, and that drug war has killed, this is uh, something posted by the Philippine National Police in December of 2016, and I'm using this because the first casualty in the war for truth in the Philippines is the number of people killed in the drug war. This one is very stark. It is posted by the police on Facebook, they use hashtag real numbers, and they admit that in fighting illegal drugs, almost 4,000 people were killed by the police in police operations. That's 3,967. And they added 16,355 homicide cases under investigation. They just kept parsing the numbers so no one knows exactly how many have been killed. But as of December, this is alarming, 20,000 people. But Every time we tried to get the numbers, they would attack us. This is part of the reason Rappler was targeted. Here's the clear example of difference in the, the attacks on traditional media. And I think you have something similar happening to you here. This is January this year. The first top, 86% of Filipinos, that's the Pew Global Attitude Survey. In the real world, Filipinos were asked, do you uh, trust traditional media? And they said they've... 86% found traditional media fair and accurate. But at the same month, at the bottom, is something from the Edelman Trust Survey of people on social media. And if you look at that bottom rung, if you're on social media, 83% had a negative perception of traditional media. So 83% distrusted traditional media. That's a complete upside down, right? In the physical world, 86% trust. In the virtual world, on social media, 83% distrust. How did that happen? Here's how. This is a timeline of attacks on Facebook. 97% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook. And of that 97%, they get their news from Facebook. So I, I want to just show you what we did is we started gathering data from Facebook. And we put it in a database, and these were the attacks on traditional media. And I just want you to look at bayaran, which means corrupt, and biased, which bias. I always add the ED to be grammatically correct, but you know. So this line here is over time, this is in 2015, corrupt. So there were always doubts. People always attack media. But look at the difference, just on the timeline, right, how much it was hit. And it solidified the attacks to actually make people believe that media is corrupt. Solidified around the time of the campaign and solidified here after President Duterte took office. That's this line. This line is bias, right? That traditional media is bias. Again, a hint of the of, that it is there, that that narrative is there, but the narrative was pounded so hard during the campaign and then weaponized in July of 2016, and now it's a solid line. That's how you move your society. What does our database look like? It's this. So I have a small team of people, my social media team. How do they know who they're going to respond to? We actually respond. So we built, we took the data that we had, and then we built a database that can tell them, here are the agents, meaning these are the URLs that are, that are actually spreading, hosting fake news. Um, these, are the, uh, these are the commenters. They can get it, the top shared post. This line here are the Facebook pages that are sharing these URLs. And then you can see here, right? I always look at average reposting. And if you look at it, 
We scraped backwards in time so we can see, so you can see, you can track the words, and then we went forward in time. If you look at it, how will my social media team know? October 2016 was when we had the most attacks because we published a propaganda series. And if you go down to Sally Matai, you can see 17.8 times reposting of every single post, right? And you can look at this rudimentary URL and you can see this is a cut and paste effort, right? All cut and paste. So now my social media team doesn't have to go through all of Facebook to do it. It's in one URL. And where are they posting? This is a full-time job, right? These are all the campaign pages of Duterte and Bongbong Marcos combined. That's why it's so interesting when you see the data. Every square there is a day, and every line here is a Facebook page. You can also, for my social media team, they can type in a name, and then they can figure out, they can then see, is that cut and paste? Should I respond to it, or should I just block and delete, right? You can do both. Anyway, all right, so what can you do when you have this database? You can do many things. Not only can you pull out the timeline of attacks, you can also chart the network that is spreading the disinformation, right? Let me show you. This looks super geeky, right? But this is just pulling out the attack against the vice president, Lenny Robredo, in January last year. And this is using social network analysis so that we can figure out how did it spread. If you were the account that actually created it, how did it spread from there? And then you can map it. This is what it looks like. And this same network is a network that attacked me. So why October 2016? We took the data and did a series of stories in October 2016. When I published those, I did two of the three stories in that series. I was attacked 90, well, we had an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour. That's the network that also triggered that, those attacks against me and Rappler. All right, so this is the attack against Lenny Robredo, the network. This account is ground zero, uh, the content creator. There are three content creators. And you can actually see how methodical they are because they broke down in demographics. So this is kind of pseudo-intellectual. This is in charge of creating content for the middle class. And this is the mass base. How does this connect? The social media is the foundation. It is the harbinger of the types of changes and policies that the government was doing. From there, it jumps to traditional media. This account is a columnist here in Manila Times. In Manila Times, their chairman emeritus is in charge of the global public relations of President Duterte, of our government. That goes directly and is linked to our state media, who their head actually said, you know, Maria, I'm so happy. We're sending all of our guys to China and Russia for training. It's free. <laughs> so, and then we close the loop on all of that by appointing the mass base account. She's a singer. She's a sexy singer-dancer, right? She's part of kind of like uh, the Spice Girls, but more sexual. Uh, she became the head of social media for the presidential palace. Uh, she now heads social media for the Philippines. Welcome to our information ecosystem and the disinformation networks in the Philippines. She started attacking traditional media with this phrase, and I think Indians are familiar with the, fra with the phrase prostitutes. Um, we just took it out of the database. Uh, it started way before... She was appointed, but it's August of 2016. And this account, she was the one that amplified it. She's now the one working with traditional media as the head of social media for the palace. I hope you see the irony in all of that, right? Um, here's the phenomenon. And it's the same in the Philippines. It's the same in India. It's the same the other country where social media campaign machinery became weaponized afterwards was Ecuador. Patriotic trolling, this was a jigsaw report that we were working on. There's, it was published just less than a month ago. State-sponsored online hate and harassment campaigns that are meant to silence and intimidate you. You get attacked. You, you try to figure out if it's real. Most of the time, it's not. Um, 
funded though, connected to the state, and then you stifle a narrative. So you're using free speech to stifle free speech. How did they first do it? In the Philippines, they looked at anyone in July who was questioning the number of people killed in the drug war, and then they attacked. And the attack is not rational. It is, I'm going to kill you. You should be raped. Uh, I will come after you. Very, very threatening. So instead of, sorry, the next part is, banner the old days where you can control by censorship, now you flood the market with, fault, with fake news, with disinformation. Women are a favorite easy target. As early as 2014, uh, women were targeted three times more than men. In the Philippines, it goes as much as 10 times more. These were the three steps. We've documented this. We have the data. Um, the one that I talk about is Senator Lila de Lima, who was a senator who investigated President Duterte. She's been in prison for more than 16 months now. Um, trial ongoing, but she's in prison. And the first step, attack the credibility of whoever it is. You don't have to prove it. You just have to repeat it enough times. If you repeat something a million times, you don't have to prove it. It's true, right? Alleged corruption, repeat exponentially. You saw the first attack against media is Bayaran, you're corrupt. The second, use sexual violence, inflame biases, fuel misogyny. You degrade the person as a sexual object. With Lila de Lima, there were, uh, there were videos released where she's supposedly having sex. Um, we've seen this also done here in India, right? And then the third, right before she was arrested, a few weeks before, they started trending hashtag arrest Lila Delima. It spreads, it tests, and then it, it creates an artificial consensus. Uh, last May, they started trying to trend hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. Uh, it didn't get that far. Thank God. Um, uh, but I looked at it. So this is what I went through with the hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. You know wh how, why they decided to arrest me? Because we took the transcript. We had a copy of the transcript between Trump and Duterte and published it. And so this middle class content creator in the propaganda machine of the government writes this. Rappler just made the Philippines a legitimate target of North Korean nuclear missiles. It sounds so ridiculous when you're in New Delhi, right? People actually believed it and spread it. From there, it went here to the Twitter account of the campaign page. Ipatawag na yan sa Senado. Call her to the Senate. Hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. From there, it went to, this is a real person, an overseas Filipino worker. This is all the same day. I can smell an arrest and possible closure of Rappler.com. Maria Ressa. Hashtag arrest Maria Ressa. This is before all the cases were filed yet, right? So you can kind of see the shifting. Then from there, then we move to the sexual stuff. Um, maybe Maria Ressa's dream is to become the ultimate porn star in a gangbang scene. No, it's not. But, but you know, he, he says so. Then here... Uh, this is on the Facebook page, me to the RP government, make sure Maria Ressa gets publicly raped to death when martial law expands to Luzon. It would bring joy in my heart. The hard part, these are two men, young men who just are graduating college. So within like 24 hours of me posting this, his school sent me a private message apologizing for him and wanting us to meet. Really strange, but... This is, this is the part that's, that's difficult for, for me because it is transforming our society. And, you know, what kind of values are we showing our young guys? Okay, let me move on. So we decided, well, we're going to try to, to create um, awareness. So we started doing support free and fearless journalism. We kicked it off, especially when the cases started coming against us. When power insists you're either with us or against us, the space for diversity of voices and ideas shrinks. When hate and anger are weaponized, it creates a spiral of silence. That did happen in the Philippines. When critical questions are simplistically, I mean, you can read the rest of it, but I will tell you that it pays the legal fees some months. So I was happy that our community happened. I'm going to end it with just one, a minute and a half video. So you know, it's not just 
grappler that is under attack. Uh, we were the third attack by our president, Philippine President Duterte, actually attacked us, singled us out in his State of the Nation address. That was new. But before us, he attacked the largest television station and he attacked the largest newspaper. I, we're very small, so I don't know why he attacked us, but maybe only because we have young kids, we have the millennials. Uh, we are large for our size, but our median age is 23 years old. I'll leave you with this video of other journalists in the Philippines. I think while these attacks are happening, there is no better time to be a journalist. We will shape what it is, and you can see it in the other people working in the Philippines. Have you ever been harassed because of your work? Yes. Have you been threatened online? I oh. Have you been called biased? Yes. Have you been called stupid? Yes, plenty times, by idiots. Have you been called disrespectful? Yes. Have you been accused of corruption? Yes. Have you been called ugly as a response to any story? Yes. Have you been called fake news? Oh yeah, they always say I'm fake news. Anything that's critical is fake, right? Have you been accused of being an imperialist spy? <laughs> yes. Have you been accused of being a communist operative? Yes. Have you been accused of working for the CIA? Yes. Have you been sexually harassed as a journalist? Yes. Has your family been threatened, harassed, or alluded to? Yes, uh, it has. Uh, specifically, my daughter, when she died, uh, there were a lot of people who made fun of that. Have you been threatened with rape? Yes. Yes. No, not me, but my family. Have you been threatened with violence? Yes. Have you been threatened with death? Yes. Have you been told how you're going to be killed? Yes. Has the violence been described to you? Yeah, blow my head off uh, or bury me alive. What will stop you from reporting? Nothing. 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 Death? Did you have to kill me? That was fascinating, quite apart from everything else. It's almost as if we are in part hearing about what is going on here. I'm sure I want to hear, actually. I followed a few things. But first, before I... Can we seek your help on some of the things you've done? We'd like to do something like that exactly here because it is just fascinating to be able to do that. But I'll keep that conversation for later. I don't yeah, think everybody... Yeah, yeah. So if... I, because a lot of the audience will not know the context, so I just want to go back where Rappler started in 2012. Sure. What made you start Rappler? What was the ecosystem then? What has changed? We'll I, I had been a, a TV journalist for a very long time, and I was running the largest network. And I realized that what makes a news group successful, like if you're doing TV, if you're running a TV station, it's very hard to pivot it to the internet because all your best people are on your primetime news. They're highly paid. That's why they're there, because you make your most revenue from that, right? Which means the internet doesn't get enough attention. And so in 2011, I, I actually took a step back. I, in 2008, I had three journalists kidnapped by the Abu Sayyaf. And I, we got them out, negotiated and got them out in 10 days. So I wanted to write a book. And I re resigned and was writing a book. And then all of a sudden, I was like, my gosh, we should try to do something. I didn't want to go back to doing traditional journalism. Um, what I felt was the promise of the internet. Uh, the reason I know and love and hate Facebook is Facebook allowed us to beat these traditional news organizations. We embrace the idea that social media can empower people. Right? That was in 2012. And in 2012, we grew 100 to 300% year on year for the first four years of Rappler. We spent a fraction of the cost. We had less than 100 people. We started with 12 people. And imagine, we were doing better than news groups that had been around for decades. That was the power of Facebook. Um, so that, that was what we wanted. I wanted to experiment. I'm tired of writing stories and then throwing them into a black hole and not feeling the impact in our society. And I felt that with social media, we can actually get our communities together and help build institutions bottom up. So we don't have to wait for government. Because why wait, right? So um, I was old enough to have experience 
but young enough to be, we, you heard, naively idealistic. Um, and I didn't see, it, if you asked me, and I was asked in early 2016, could democracy really be rolled back? And I said, no way. Social media is there. I just could not have imagined what's happening. And I should have imagined it, because we saw it in Russia. We were seeing it in India already. And you guys actually, you're started in, and again, let's talk about the movement towards authoritarian strongman rulers. You started it in 2014. I covered Indonesia, Suharto's son-in-law, Prabowo, almost won. Jokowi squeaked by. But I think the trend began with you. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, certainly the word prostitute was... Yours? <laughs> Why are they all, like, following each other? <laughs> they learn from each other. They and do. I think we haven't learned enough from each other. I think that's one of the problems. The good guys uh, are really slow. <laughs> So, who were the young people who you started with? You spoke about the millennials. I just, uh, how did you pick your team? Who, who was it? What were you looking for? Uh, we raised the money uh, ourselves. We, how we. Did you do that? So before I, because that's sure, sure. And I know you have a. Actually, I, who, if any coders are here, please come see me. I always look for. So we, I, um, we raised. $2 million as a seed fund. And it helped because I'm old enough, right? Uh, we were, and that was largely our money. We put together enough, the, the original, uh, the founders of Rappler. And then we, I figured, look, um, the 12 people that were there, four or five of us were above 40. And it was all the network in ABS-CBN, several people left after I had left. And so there were four or five of us who had real experience. And then I looked for the smartest 20-somethings I could find. In fact, I hired three of the original 12 from Twitter. Um, one woman who uh, had, I had, we had followed each other. And then she like, just tweeted me to say she was finishing college in the US. And she said, I want to come back to the Philippines. And we talked. I hired her on Skype. Um, because those were the days when Twitter can actually show you the values of a person, right? The nice old days, not so long ago. <laughs> that was like 2011, guys. So, so that was it, 12 people. We started with 12, and then I figured it's an experiment. If it doesn't work, we could all go back to our old jobs. If it did work, then gosh, who knows? That would be a whole new thing. It surpassed my expectations. Um, obviously, President Duterte thinks we're really important because he's a, they, the government has expended a lot of energy. Um, we're very frank. I think that's the one thing, and we will remain so. And then the last part is we don't like getting bullied, and we have enough experience to actually you know, push back. Um, that's one of the things journalists, I think, have to do now. We do have to come together. And that's, so the last part of what we're trying to do in the Philippines is to get traditional media together so that we can um, leverage our strengths against this disinformation networks. Uh, what was the sort of political climate, the larger ecosystem leading up to Duterte? Was it much easier? Was the transformation sudden? Or was there something you could sense that was leading there when you look back today? I think like the rest of the world, uh, no, it was a shock. <laughs> Only a shock in the sense that there's justifiable anger uh, between the haves and the have-nots. The political elite, the oligarchs, it's a great narrative that continues to give for the propaganda machine. The oligarchs, the trickle-down didn't trickle down to enough people. We had very high GDP rates, but there wasn't enough. So it was portrayed as an oligarch, and then you take it away from the poor. Come on, this is the same. In the US, it was the 99% versus the 1%, right? So that was what we saw happening. And I couldn't have, fig I couldn't have imagined it. But it was taking the fracture lines of our society and then hitting it with a hammer of hate so that you inflame everyone with anger. 
they forget to look at what they're supposed to be looking at, i.e. the higher levels of corruption now, and um, you splinter them and you make them yearn for the good old days where someone really strong could fix all the problems with a magic wand. Um, it's a long, a, a long explanation to how did we get there. Duterte was a reaction to uh, Benigno Aquino. Every president you elect is always a reaction to the one who came before, right? But what no one realized was that this charismatic, um, kind of tough-talking, beer-drinking, like he's the guy you'd go get a beer with. Uh, this kind of guy that would bring in a propaganda machine that would alter the fabric of our democracy. And we're not alone. So I, I saw the, the 10 minutes. The November last year, Freedom House came out with a, with a survey that said in 30 of 65 countries, cheap armies of social, on social media are rolling back democracy. You're one of the 30 countries, along with the Philippines. After, that was followed by RSF, the Reporters Sons Frontiers. Uh, they came out with a study of 180 countries where they said hate was being used against journalists. And then The Economist did another extensive survey. There are two more. Just last Saturday, um, the House of Commons Select Committee in Great Britain took a look and came out with a very good uh, report on disinformation and how it is influencing elections in different parts of the world and how Cambridge Analytica, sorry, so much, so much to thread together, right? But Cambridge Analytica manipulates people. They use hate. Yes, that's happening, that happened in the US, but the country, aside from the country with the next highest level of compromised accounts with Cambridge Analytica was the Philippines. I will look for India. Uh, <laughs> So ironically, looking back, because this happened here, that uh, the very media whose criticisms first allowed somebody like a Modi or Duterte to build up public anger becomes the target immediately after. Is that more or less how it unfolded there? Absolutely. Because the key thing is once they're in power, you want to cripple any other credible voices. Um, if you don't know, all you have to do is infuse a seed of doubt. And if you don't know whom to trust, the only voice you will hear and hear repeatedly is the voice with the loudest megaphone. That is our leaders. And how quickly did you sense this turnaround? During the campaign itself or was it immediately after? When did you get targeted? When did you realize this was happening? Um, it wasn't the campaign. We saw the anger fueled. But it was largely homegrown. It happened after the campaign in July of 2016 when President Duterte boycotted traditional media at the same time that social media campaign machinery pivoted and began attacking anyone who was questioning the drug war. We came under attack because we did the propaganda series and we continued to use data to expose them. I think you could do this very easily in India because Twitter is your... Twitter is, you, you have access to the fire hose, right? And I know it's a tough time to be a journalist. But I think our best defense is going to be to, again, shine the light. But what, they, what, what this new disinformation warfare, this information warfare landscape has done is to attack the journalists that actually allowed them to exist in the first place. right? And they seem to be particularly affronted by women journalists, gender, because we spoke about Rana here, and the, it sounds very familiar to what has happened, uh, videos, morphed, and all women journalists, colleagues, speak of the same thing. Where does that come from? Um, we can only just look at the patterns, right? I, and again, Rana Ayub is, is an example, Gujarat, the, the, her book on, the, on what happened there, right, sure. in Gujarat. President Duterte has DDS, the Davao death squads, uh, because of the extrajudicial killings in Davao. But what was interesting is the propaganda machine on social media took DDS, which was a, a, neg a negative. He had to fight that, right, that he was killing people. He happily admitted, yes, I kill people um, in an interview with me. And then they turned DDS into a positive. It became Duterte diehard supporters. So it's this reframing of reality. It's, 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 it's kind of like 
your Alice jumping into Wonderland, into the rabbit hole, and the Mad Hatter is in charge. That's kind of, so, I'm sorry, I, I, with Rana, in Rana's case, those same exact conditions had happened, right? She came out with a book on the Gujarat riots, pinpointed, but instead of actually, in the old days, government would begin an investigation, and then they would, and our, our investigations as journalists would, fe would feed into that. In the new world, our investigations would be discredited, we would be discredited, and, um, and shoved aside. And what's happening now is that, uh, why are women attacked? That's your other question. Maybe it's also stripping away this layer. We talked about this up in the plenary. Maybe we're not as open or as liberal or as inclusive as we think we are. It's bringing out the inner asshole in everyone. Um, and real people who are normally nice guys, you know, there's all of a sudden, you have an imprimatur to be really horrid. And it's okay. And everyone is doing it. Women are easy targets because we tend not to respond. And you get beaten into silence. And I will say this. I think the initial impact on a woman is to um, is to figure out whether it's your fault, right? You sit there and you go, like for me, did I get all my data right? Is my story accurate, right? And I went back over it, but and then I actually responded to many of the ninety hate messages. Then I realized they weren't listening; they were just pounding. They didn't want to engage; they just wanted to kill you, literally. It to stifle you, to make you silent. And what we saw in the Philippines, and the data shows this, from August 2016 to August 2017, there was a spiral of silence. Filipinos literally um, uh, stopped talking if they had a different view. So, and we saw this on Alexa rank. Every country websites are ranked by Alexa. So in January 2016, Facebook was number one. January 2017, Facebook dropped to number eight because Filipinos shut down because it was so much toxic waste. Um, it'd be interesting to see what what's, uh, what is happening in India. And I, is anyone doing this kind of forensics? I think it's something that needs to be done. It can be replicated very easily, which is why, I unfortunately, I think we are running out of time. We need to. <laughs> Because I think that's. So I don't know. We are looking at elections in 2019, and uh, there is silence. There is disinformation, pounding of uh, any voice which is different. So I don't know. There are too many issues, and how they will be addressed. You know, in just a year's time. Or will we look at the elections which will be propaganda driven and I don't know. I'm not very optimistic about the result of how fair it will be. So don't, don't be cynical yet because I think that we have to fight for it. And so we're, I'm fighting impunity on two fronts, right? With the government and Facebook. Uh, in India, I think you need to go both Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Twitter primarily. Uh, but... The reason why is, look, look at what's happened to Facebook. So I, since we were alpha partners of Facebook, I stayed quiet for a year and gave them all the data, asking them to fix it. They didn't really pay attention because who are we? The Philippines is this small country way out there that doesn't give them very high ARPUs, <laughs> right? So then I started talking publicly. And I speak really plainly. And when the data is this clear, then we started seeing, but it wasn't until our story was came out on Bloomberg, and that was already December 2017. And then we started to pull a coalition together, a global coalition, Myanmar. In the global south, every day that Facebook does not take action, someone dies. That's the difference. Mark Zuckerberg in Congress said, uh, it'll take us three years to fix this. We don't have three years. I could go to jail. Don't tweet this. Um, <laughs> these charges against me, the criminal case, I could go to jail from 5 to 15 years in prison. And that is enabled by Facebook. So I will, 
I think we should demand that this American company actually be held liable for what it is allowing to happen on its platform, right? So that's one. But this, <laughs> but the second thing, I think the second thing, Facebook, thank you for organizing the workshop today. <laughs> they also want to fix it, right? There are people inside. But the second thing I would say is that the journalists have to keep doing the stories. We have to, and our business model is under threat, again, with the tech giants. These are all, all entwined. Um, I think the last part is, don't lose, I don't, I'm not losing hope because we have elections also in 2019, but the US has elections this year. And so Facebook is turning cartwheels right now, right? You, and you saw their stock drop uh, $120 billion in a day uh, because they said they were going to address it, right? So the world is still being formed. I think if we all come together, India, you are the large, you are huge. Um, if you come together and demand some of these things, it can happen. So I think we are, we've already gone on to questions, so we'll just continue with that. And we are running out of time. I think we actually need another hour. But uh, yeah, sure. Hello. Thank you so much for a wonderful session. I'm sure all of us learned a lot today. Uh, my name is Arshi Agarwal. I wanted to ask you a two-part question. One is that you showed us wonderful data. It definitely is something that needs to be done here in India as well, and quickly. But what uh, what does the, what does this data do? Like we have this data, we have this information. This happens in India also. Like sometimes people just put on the uh, screenshots of the haters, and then they sort of publicly shame them that this is what people have been doing. This is how I have been getting threats. But what does that happen? What does that achieve? Like did it actually? help you in some or the other way. And second thing is that uh, within Philippines media, was there uh, support from traditional media when you were fighting back these kind of uh, attempts to stifle you or attempts to make you silent? Thank you. They're great questions. So the first one, and I'll try to be succinct, but the first one is, um, what does it accomplish? What I didn't explain to you, and I can tweet some links about this, is how what makes the database different? These are social networks, right? It's not just one. It's not one. Like what we tend to always talk about is we run after one story or one attack. But this is a social network, right? So we know that this URL is spread by this network. Once you know that network, you can demand Facebook depress that, right? So what, what, are, what did it accomplish for us? One, I think if we didn't do the series, at the beginning, actually, internally, um, our folks said, Maria, you should not have done that series because you're under attack, and you are also the CEO of our company. And for a little bit, I thought maybe I shouldn't have. But you know what? If we didn't do it, our public would not have known. You have to alert your public. Because if you live on social media, you know it's happening, but your public does not. And traditional power, traditional power, really good people, there are good people in government, they don't know it's happening, right? So that's one. I think the awareness is the first part because it's like immunizing your population against, it's giving them, this is a virus you have to Im immunize your population against. That's one. The second one is, the second question was, Support from traditional. Oh, yes, I like that one. Um, remember, we're like two years ahead. This started in May of 20, July of 2016, the real weaponization. So October 2016, we have an annual media gathering. And I had told all the news heads. All the news heads come together. And I said, guys, this is happening. This is really alarming. And the, one of the television stations, one of the large ones, said, you know, that might be your problem because you're small and you're on social media, but we're OK. They changed their minds six months later, right? Because then their network was also threatened and attacked. Um, what we are doing now in the Philippines is something I would suggest you try to do in your ecosystem. 
there are two news groups that are fact-checking partners of Facebook. And what we're doing is harnessing all the news groups. So what we did is we took this database, we plugged it into a Slack channel, we got all of we got volunteers and news groups together on that Slack channel. When something gets shared over a certain frequency and, and it needs to get fact-checked, it automatically notifies the news groups and everyone who's on that Slack channel. Then we are on a platform. Check is the platform. We call it Check Philippines. Check was used in the French elections by uh, up to 40 traditional news groups that came together to fact-check the elections. So we use, we use check to fact check. And then if it's false news, it goes directly to Facebook and it gets depressed in the algorithms, right? I think we have to think about this short, medium, and long term. The long term one is uh, education. There's no, I mean, you talk, we talked in the plenary upstairs about how we need to bring everyone, right? So education, medium term, media literacy, better laws, right? People should, this is impunity. They should not be getting away with it. And then short term is making, taking the actions that will help these tech platforms that are spreading lies and allowing democracy to get rolled back to help them, right? Not just bang them on the head. We need to help them because, frankly, this is our lives on the line, right? I call it enlightened self-interest from ASEAN. <laughs> enlightened self-interest. So in, as a response to the previous question, you spoke about some of the editorial systems that you have in place uh, to keep the system in check. What is the business part of it? Uh, right? How is the funding structured? How do you ensure that tomorrow, if you're not there, or if the guys at the top who are uh, running the systems right now are not there, that the system outlasts you? and. I don't know whether it will outlast me. I really hope that we solve the problem so that I'm still around to see it solved. <laughs> um, but uh, great on the business model. Um, on the check, fact-checking things, the news heads actually came together and we got funding to do it. Um, it imagine that the top television networks and the top newspapers came together with us and then we all decided we were going to, we're doing a series of workshops across the Philippines. We have funding for 10, at least 10, and then we're plugging that database in, right? A lot of the stuff we did, we did for free. Again, it's, it's to our interest to make sure to do this so that our community is not uh, weaponized, or is not misled, and, um, and democracy rolled back. We're fighting something that is immediate right now. The, the second part of your question alludes to how will news groups survive, right? This is something I'm very intimately familiar with because I'm the CEO. I pretend I'm not, um, but I'm the CEO of this company. So what, where is the future for us? I think India, you have a little respite, but in general, you'll find the same way. Advertising is no longer it. Uh, advertising in, in the Philippines, almost 90% go to Facebook and Google, Google and Facebook. In Great Britain, this is from the Guardian CEO's um, notes, he, he pointed out 96% of digital ad spend goes to the, the two top giants, the tech platforms. Um, so how are we going to survive? Uh, we're coming up with the things that we built for Rappler and realizing that every company needs to do the exact same thing. Right? So we are pivoting our business model, and our business model is shifting to data and tech. Data and tech. Um, that's our new world. B2B. So that, that is B2B. Yes, it's B2B. So one of our problems here is that I think, and this is a caution for you because we are ahead on some things, that part of the media that you're talking about, big newspapers and television, have themselves been weaponized. They are part of the problem rather than the solution. They are working with the government. And so... I think you should call them out. Well, it doesn't matter because doesn't. there is a huge following. There's a network of which they are a part, and that is going to happen at some point yeah, or yeah, the other yeah, in yeah, any case. Yeah, yeah that... So you said uh, social media is an enabler of democracy, but there's a certain dissonance there because social media prevents healthy discourse. It's an echo chamber, people hide behind their screens, ad hominem remarks are made, and our views are constantly reinforced. How do you think we can improve our approach towards debate, arguing, and the sharing of information and ideas on social media? 
Thank you for the question. That's what I thought in 2012 <laughs> until 2015. 2016 is the year that Facebook broke the internet. I like that one. Um, sorry, Facebook broke democracy. Facebook broke democracy. And, and I would say, so what happened? In 2015, remember, Instant Articles was rolled out globally. So when Instant Articles was rolled out, all of the news groups came onto Facebook, but yet the algorithms were still popularity-based. And the entire platform of YouTube, again, let me not, not just single out Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, and, and, and Facebook. Those algorithms are about popularity. They're designed, dopamine, they're designed to keep you on the platform. It gives you what you want. News agendas do not give you what you want, right? In fact, sometimes we pride ourselves on giving people uh, the vegetables, the news they don't necessarily want to read, but they must read. That's what we're supposed to do as gatekeepers. Um, so these algorithms then quickly turned into mob rule when they were, and the weaponization began in as early as 2014, if you just look at Russian disinformation and what's happened there. Again, maybe... Maybe I can learn a lot by studying India as well. Um, but that, when it scaled along with the news groups, because if you look at the United States, it went from 40, 42% of Americans reading their news on Facebook to 62% between 2015 and 2016. 2016, 2016 was when we had the Philippine elections. Facebook claims that we're patient zero in the war against disinformation. That was followed by Brexit. That was followed by Trump blah, 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 blah. Those algorithms now have, are, have been stress tested and have failed, right? And you're right that they're now in echo chambers. So Facebook is constantly changing them. YouTube is going to have to clean up. I mean, they're kind of hiding behind Facebook right now. Um, but that's, I, my friends from Facebook and Google, you're, we're still friends. We just got to call a spade a spade because they cannot, they also know they have to do this work. I still believe that the platforms, we can't ever go back to a time before the tech platforms. The ability to scale in this way is incredible and very empowering still. But how do we bring back the listening part of democracy? How do we bring back healthy discourse? I have no solutions yet, but I can tell you we haven't left Facebook, YouTube. We are continuing to kind of battle it out day to day, second by second, conversation by conversation, precisely because we don't want to to leave that space to the trolls. And again, I guess there's there are lots of studies. If you can tweet me and I'll send you all the studies that you want, but there's one study that actually shows that the geopolitical power shifts happening globally have it's kind of like inception you know the movie inception it happened on social media first leonardo dicaprio's movie inception they go into the dream world in order to change the real world that's social media and we can see it our president was elected because he had a, partly because he had a strong social media campaign machinery um i know i i have to shut up and let you go to lunch um so you can tweet i will answer <laughs> We must be out of time. Yeah. Yes. Okay. We'll have to stop there. I'm sorry. We could have gone on. Thank you very much. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to our YouTube channel.